Welcome back, folks. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Before we jump back into our conversation, into our conversation here, I want to remind you the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, is helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or steinershow.org is Miku Baltimore Credit Union's banner. So I don't think it's changed since last night, but when I last looked yesterday when we talked about this on the air, there were 299 murders in Baltimore City. A young man was arrested last night. For the murders that took place on the west side of town, where I lived 27 years, um, where several people were shot and several people were murdered, um, and we are online to having more murders in Baltimore this year than we had in a long time, through 300 at least, um, and which is not something any of us want to have happen. And stats are stats, but the reality is we're talking about human beings and in, 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 in people's lives and in community. So the question we're probably going to wrestle with today is, is, so how do we respond to that? I mean, there's clearly money has to be invested in programs and people who work day to day in the communities to bring people in and to kind of try to end and ameliorate the violence in our communities. But what about long term? Uh, when you have a history with a city, a, a city with a history of racial and economic discrimination uh, that is part of where we are now, uh, the reason why we are the place we are now, why communities are so isolated, what are the long-term prospects to change that? And how do you get there? And what is the struggle to get us to that place so that we don't lose these lives, whether it's lives by murder, lives by people being shot, or the the pain that people have to live with and the trauma people have to live with surrounding that because they live in the midst of that and their families and friends. We're here with Shireen Christmas. Morgan State grad, founded Rainfall Dance Studios, executive director of Muse 360 Arts uh, here in Baltimore City. She and uh, takes organizes programs every year where she takes young people throughout the African diaspora across the globe uh, and does incredible work. And in the studio, good to have you here, Sharena. Good to be here. Always good to have you here. David Miller's with us. Uh, the first man I called on all of this because of the stuff he's been writing and doing. Created a Dare to Be King, LLC, author of many books, including the children's book, The Green Family Farm. David, good to see you in the house. Thank you for having me. Eddie Conway, producer at the Real News Network's Baltimore Bureau, former Black Panther leader uh, and co-author of Martial Law, The Life and Times of Baltimore Black Panther. Good to have you back with us, Eddie. All right. Thank you for having me. And the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III, founding director of the Black Church Food Security Network and a Reader's Cross Freedom School, and of course, pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church. And Reverend Brown, good to have you in the studio. Thank you, sir. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. I see people calling in now. That's great. You can send us an email to talk at steinershow.org. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. Log on to our Facebook pages, 410-319-8888. So it's not as – I mean, it, David Miller, you write about this almost every day. You're in the middle of this. It's on Facebook. You're always kind of talking about the, the, the depth of this problem and what we have to do to put our hands around it. And often you talk about you know men standing up, black men standing up, which is important, but which is a critical aspect of it. But there's so much – the issues we're facing are so deep. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, where do you begin? We have this new mayor. Think about what kind of things this new mayor has to think about. And we have to think about as a city with a new mayor and eight new city council people. Can we make a dent? Well, Mark, I think some of the larger questions is, are um, how do we build 
safer communities where families can um, can thrive. And I think when we look at uh, Baltimore as a whole, um, I mean, we definitely have to look at um, some of those central issues like race and class and opportunities, because in some neighborhoods, it's relatively easy to to thrive based on institutions, whether it's um, school and other kinds of institutions that are designed to um, educate, uplift and, and, and socialize children and families. But in some of the other communities, particularly communities where we see a lot of the violence occurring, where we see a lot of the, the, the urban decay. I mean, I think that that's a that's a question that we have to ask. Why are some neighborhoods in Baltimore literally falling apart? And then there are other neighborhoods in Baltimore that are thriving. I mean, I think that that has to be sort of a central question um, that we have to grapple with. So I, I wonder how we began to do that. I mean, you know, I mean, Sharina, when I look at the I look at the map of where people are killed in the city, let's say, mm-hmm. it's really concentrated in a few concentrated in the middle of the city. Some people are shot out in northeast Baltimore. Some people are shot and killed in places in Forest Park, but not you don't see a lot of dots in those areas, in, you know, in black middle-class neighborhoods. You don't see hardly any dots in white middle-class and upper-middle-class areas. So, I mean, so, but, so we, 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 we know where the dislocation is, and these are the kids you work with every day, right? Yeah, so one of my students actually just, he was working with me over the summer. He actually... Um, was arrested maybe about two months ago. One of the statistics that people found is that when young people are not engaged after the summer months, like the, the next consecutive months, they either get arrested, you know, for anything from theft to drugs to murder. Um, and he was arrested for two of those things. And I've just found that a lot of my young people, they're, they just don't, they're not engaged in an idea of hope. And that might sound cliche, but one of the things I asked my young people what are some of the things that you're facing as a teenager? And the one, the one thing that they said was violence. So we attended. Three, they said to you. They said to me. And these, right. are, these are teenagers between the ages of 14 to 19. And they said violence is our number one challenge. And that's not something like, like Mr. Miller said, that's not something that happens in those communities that are not decaying, that have systems of, of healthy socialization. So I engaged them in healthy socialization this past summer. And for some of my students, they turned around. But for this one particular student, he didn't show up. And he began this string, and it was in the news, but he began this string of um, thefts and violence. And, you know, I, I, when I did engage him, when I saw him, you know, he just said, like, he just doesn't believe in it. He doesn't believe that there's any other option for him. And, you know, I find that a lot of my young people are just not engaged in that idea of hope, that idea of someone actually looking them in their eye and saying, you know, you can have something. We also don't have enough we didn't have a lot of male role models, you know, particularly this past summer. We only had one, which was Bashi. Bashi. Um, and then, you know, um, Eddie. Eddie also talked to some of my young people, which was great. But they're just not engaged with that. And that's something that they crave. And it, se- it sounds cliche, but we do have to have a group of, of men, a group of, you know, just a community stand up to actually engage some of these young people that then turn into, you know, they become arrested, and then recidivism just continues over and over and over again. But you can't do that in an area that looks like, you know, World War Four just broke out. You can't do that where it's trash everywhere. You can't do that where, you know, one of my one of my parents, her nephew just got shot in the head because he mm-hmm. didn't want to join a gang, and he just had his third child. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't a young person of violence. So do you understand, like, you live in an area of violence. It just becomes a part of your everyday life. Even my son describes the police as people that don't help people. Now, we had a shootout in the back of my house in northeast Baltimore up the street two weeks ago. So my six-year-old son now describes the police as something. He, he knows that there's violence connected to guns 
I don't talk about this with him, but it's something that is now becoming a part of his language. At six years old. At six years, and it shocked me. But at six years old. Wow. <sighs> so hope, Reverend Brown. You think the preacher would be able to give you? We needed that for a moment. Right, Thank you. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Got you. <laughs> but I think I I think that um, you know I, I I like to think about um, and why I appreciate a segment like this because I like to think about how we how we got here, at least some of the ways that we got here to this, even to this conversation about violence. And one of the things that I often think about, Mark and family, is like how how did we embrace certain definitions of violence that are so narrow and so rigid? Like, so we talk about the violence of people getting shot in West Baltimore or stabbed in fights and the like. But why is it that our definitions of violence do not also by default talk about gentrification, do not talk about by default the lack of jobs in our communities, the lack of uh, fresh food in our communities. I think it doesn't have to be an either-or thing, but I think that those policies or le- legislation should be part and parcel of the conversation when we talk about violence in Baltimore. To only talk about interpersonal violence, I think, will yield a whole lot of um, emotional responses, uh, which are, are good and warranted, um, but and, and knee-jerk reactions, but I think if we want to swim upstream a little bit, Mark, then I think we have to broaden out this definition of what violence is and and how we got here. And so when the definitions of violence that we use in our common conversation and understanding, when those definitions of violence are created by those who are being violent toward us, right, then any solutions that spring from those definitions are going to be short-sighted. I bet you if you asked a hunter what is violence, that they would have a different definition than if you asked a lion what is violence, right? And so I think we're operating off of definitions of violence that are given to us top-down as opposed to us constructing our own definitions of what violence is. If we do that work, I think we would get a little closer to also having solutions that would address in a systemic way the violence that we're facing, right? Because I think that um, a programmatic approach, more and more programs, more programs, more programs, Mm -hmm. a programmatic approach, I think, is of limited use to systemic problems. I think systemic problems need systemic solutions. Um, We can have all the great programs, and you got a lot of amazing programs represented even at this table right now, but programs don't get us upstream higher than just trying to get through this day or this six-year-old or that eight-year-old. All important work. But if we want to get beyond just trying to survive day to day, somebody has to get have the room to back up from the table, look with a bigger picture, and, and examine things like the 1910 land use ordinance in Baltimore, which helped to outline segregation. Or, or when segregation was no longer legal, Baltimore found other ways to reinforce racial segregation economics. Like, and, and, the, and that's 1910. We're 2016 going to 2017. But the residue and the ripples from those ordinances in the early 20th century we're still living with today. And we'd be fools to believe that there are not policies, ordinances, and legislation that is currently being made that's going to impact 100 years from now if somebody doesn't create and think about in a systemic way. In, in parallel, not either or again, programs should continue and expand and be supported, but systemic approaches. If you don't have food in your neighborhood, putting fresh food in corner stores is a program. 
having your own food system as a community is a that's a different approach. Both are needed. And so that that's where I, I'm really excited about being a part of this conversation, Mark, to really broaden. I'd love to get to the place where by default we look at violence in both interpersonal and systemic ways as well. I think that Eddie Conway is what one of the reasons I opened the show the way I did. Yeah. Was because we have to deal with programmatically and immediately with the pain and danger that our children and communities feel because of the violence that is rampant inside of them. But that doesn't answer, will never answer the question ultimately because the questions are so deep in terms of the historical economic segregation of our communities. And so, so I mean, so, so pick up on where Hebrew mm-hmm. from, from your political perspective. Yeah, uh, one one of the things, and and I agree with like everything that's been said before, and 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 I think that broadened definition is an important piece because even now we don't recognize the violence that's uh, brought upon the community by having two point three million people in the prison system. That isolation, that breaking of the bonds, that destruction of family units, that inability to have role models, I mean, that in itself and and, and placing those prisoners in rural communities that have a different culture and a different complexion than they do uh, creates a lot of frustration, a lot of animosity that comes back into our communities uh, as broken people in a lot of cases and angry people, certainly, and that contributes greatly to that violence. But at the same time that's happening, young people are growing up uh, without those role models. They're growing up without those family units intact. And so, and then when we look at the prison system, uh, we see that maybe 80% of the people in those prison systems or uh, in some kind of drug-related kind of charge, uh, whether it's uh, uh, protecting the community that's that's uh, selling narcotics or whatever, or whether it's protecting uh, their ability to make money. Uh, and those charges, that war against the community, that, the war on drugs, is part of what's done, done put a lot of violence in our community against us. And and so, like like uh, 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 Pastor Brown said, we have to look at the larger systemic system, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, and this is something I try to do, uh, I work down in one of those areas that you talk about, uh, and I try to talk to people that has moving away, because you can't you can't fault people from moving to places that they feel like they can raise their children safer. You know, but it takes away our role models. You know, if if we're successful in doing whatever we can do, our role models leave and then they leave young people without that role model. And it's important now for us to come back into those communities, even as we're raising our children in those safe communities. We got to come back to those other communities that's designated as as ghettos for whatever uh, uh, definition you want. We got to come back into those areas and we got to work with those young people. We got to let them see role models. We got to give them and that hope piece is a very important piece Mm -hmm. because if you see people running around and they look like 
uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome people as a result of being in a war because it is a war. When you go into our communities, in certain communities, you'll see not only are they collapsing and decaying, but you also find a heavy presence of police patrolling. More money is spent in those communities that we're talking about to to control people, to police people, and to keep people under control than it is to employ people. One of the things that I found, and I go down in the community, and you talk to the young men on the corner, they want jobs. They really want to work. They don't want to risk their lives. They don't want to uh, end up in jail. But at the same time, all they can find is work for $7 or $8, and it's, it's not enough to take care of them, and it's not enough to take care of their families, and so they put themselves at risk. So what question is, so, so let's, I mean, if we, if we had, and folks, I'm going to come to the phones, and so Ricky and Gene and Malik and Donna, I promise going to get to your calls. But I just need to set something up here so we can let you comment on what you're hearing from the panel here on the show. If we had the power, <laughs> even if it was just the power the city has, let's see, we had no other power but the city has, how do you... How do you begin to change the dynamic of the city? I mean, if we actually had the mayor's office, if we had the president city council, if we were calling these shots, if we were pushing the ideas, what would the ideas that would begin to change that, both in terms of getting men inside the community and, and, doing the, and, and women to doing the kind of work in community that has to be done, dealing with the situation of inequality, of jobs, of ending the decay? I mean, so where would we, what would we do? What would that look like? How do we... You know, if, sometimes I think we, if we can just frame what we think mm-hmm. it looks like, what it should look like, it gives us something to fight for. Mm-hmm. Right? We're always fighting against, it seems. Mm-hmm. Right. It gives us something to fight for. Some of it, Mark, in terms of what it, what it should look like, um, is regardless of, of the zip code that you live in in Baltimore City, um, there should be equal access to opportunity, regardless of, of the zip code. And I think part of what needs to happen is that, that we also got to talk about strategic investments. And so looking at how do we invest in communities and also the people of communities, what happens all too often, I know Pastor Brown and I've had these conversations, we tend to invest in other people who come in from outside of Baltimore and ask those people to rebuild Baltimore and we provide those people with, with those investments. What about if we began to look at those community champions um, in those neighborhoods and work with those community champions to not only do some of the larger systems reform, but then to also look at how do we meet the needs of children and families, um, the day-to-day needs of children and families in communities, I think is an approach um, that will give us what we need in terms of how do we change systems, but then also how do we look at impacting the day-to-day lives of families who live in those in those zip codes? So where does that start? I mean, you know, we, we just well, we, go ahead. Well, one of, one of the things there's maybe twenty thousand abandoned houses, say in the city, uh, and they need to be. Some of them need to be uh, demolished. Some of them can be renovated. I mean, it's that's a project that we can engage, train, and employ young people. To do that's a that's a, 
twenty thousand houses is is a a a good asset or a liability. We can use that, and we can train people, and we can we can start and and it's a public works program. But uh, you renovate those houses that can be renovated. You save the materials from the ones that you uh, uh, deconstruct, and you build a better community right there by having people working and and using those resources. Rather than what I see is going on, Baltimore is being hollowed out. Those houses are being left there, and when they are deconstructed, green lots are being left there. So the city is not really being gentrified. It's being emptied in communities, and we need to stop that and change that because it's, it's whole blocks where people don't even know anybody anymore. You know, so that's a resource that we have. That's a program that we could uh, uh, engage young people in, and it's something that we could use to to uh, develop better communities. So we have a we we have a finite amount of money in the city, at least from when we look at budgets. Five or six hundred million dollars of the money that we put into this, what is it, one point some billion dollar city budget? I should have that in my head, but I don't. Goes to the Baltimore City Police. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Bingo. So so we have to think about how do we want to spend that money? Where does the money go? How do you keep the safety of our citizens insured? And we do have a city where we have more police per capita than almost any other city in America. So what do we what do we do? Let's just take that pot of money, the pot of money we have in the city, and how do you spend it in a different way? Well, I would increase I would incre- of course increase funding for the school system. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm thinking about um, Garrett Powers in this great book. Uh, Mark, whenever you invite me, you always, always force me to bring out my books. I, well, that's important. And, and right? go to homework. <laughs> um, Black Baltimore, A New Theory of Community by Harold McDougall. Uh, oh, Harold, I know Harold McDougall. Yeah, yeah. Great, great text. Oh, yeah. Howard uh, University. He yes, sir. In this, we, from CIG and the Civil Rights Movement back in the 60s. Yeah. I know Harold, yeah. Great, right. great his right. context and history to Baltimore in this book. I would encourage people to pick it up. But in it, he quotes Garrett Powers to have said, uh, um, to have said we have to discount the righteous rhetoric of reform. And I think tinkering with the school system is not going to get us the results that we uh, that we desire to see. I think it's time for some wholesale changes. And many of our systems are nearly full of talks about the nine people areas of activity. We need to look at the systems of our society and to wholesale change it. There might be some some um, uh, facets of things that need to stay, but I think you could agree. That by and large, for a lot of the systems, it's time to push reset and not just reform, right? And so we start with our school system. In my mind, that's that's an example of swimming upstream because you're talking about what two, three hundred children and their families at a pop, right? And so uh, more funding for these local schools, but not just the funding. It's not just throwing more money for them to do the same thing. I think it's time to reset the curriculum in these schools. Do you know? And, and you you know, and we know that there are. Um, you know, things being taught in schools today that's like harkening back to the 1940s and 50s in terms of the perspective of history, in terms of the skills that are being taught, the knowledge. It's like you're preparing children for what, really? If you really analyze these education systems, what are you preparing students for? Jobs in Baltimore? Is that what jobs, right? Uh, 
washing the windows at Port Covington? Is that what what are we really preparing them for? If we say, oh, they can be anything they want to be, oh, they have all these gifts and all this genius, then have a school system that matches what you say out your mouth, right? And so I think a curriculum and programs in our schools that matches the genius and the potential that they have is one way to look downstream a little bit, right? And so you won't see immediate, oh, Baltimore's changed overnight. No, it's a six-year-old. But I can tell you in 30 years from now, right, now you're talking about um, – uh, young men and young women uh, who are uh, sober, sane, uh, and, and able to contribute to community in a healthy way. And so I think that's one way. If we were to look at the different systems, Mark, and let's just take police money. I like taking that money. Let's just take that money and redirect it. I think we can start making some meaningful meaningful investment in these people uh, that Brother David is talking about, local champions who will never be, uh, you know, identified as a community leader by – you know, some nonprofits or foundations, but on that block, they are the leader. Um, so broadening even our ideas of how leaders show up and what skills and gifts they bring to the table, putting wind behind those kinds of sales and then impacting the systems in local communities. And then finally, I'll just say, I know people want to jump on from the phone, but finally, I'll say we also have to consider creating systems outside of the current systems that we're in. Right. And so that's where the bulk of my energy is. That's where I'm really energized these days. That was a that was a line and an avenue beyond the civil rights movement that does not get as much play, that everybody wasn't marching with King to reform a system. Mm -hmm. There were many others who were working to create new systems on top of the. You know uh, the crumbs and the and the rubble of corro- corrosive systems. We'll first have to take a quick yeah. news break. When we come back, we're going to go right to Sharena to comment on this. Then we're going to open the phones. And Chris and Ricky uh, and Donna, you are the first callers up. Gene, we're going to get your calls, uh, write your calls, give you the rest of this program to interact with our guests. Stay with us. We'll be right back at four one zero three one nine eighty Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner, and we're wrestling with the most crucial issues facing the city of Baltimore here with our panel, the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, founding director of the Black Church Security Network, and Arita's Cross Freedom School, an amazing place, and pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, Eddie Conway, producer of Real News Network, co-author of Martial Law, The Life and Times of a Baltimore Black Panther, David Miller, creator of Dare to be King, LLC, and author of numerous books, including his latest, The Green Family Farm, a children's book, and Shireen Christmas, uh, who is... uh, founder of Rain Fall Dance Studios and executive director of News 360 Arts. And before we hit the phones, which we're going to do right after this comment, Shireen didn't have a chance to talk before we went to break. <laughs> Shireen. Yeah, I just wanted to comment on what Pastor Brown was talking about in terms of the school system because I have a child in the school system. And one of the things that I asked the, the, um, the new mayor is um, when she came to speak to us was about leadership. You know, I understand that there's a lot of money going towards new schools, but I think that what the city lacks in terms of really trying to develop and change the systems is strong leadership. And a lot of times I'm thinking about myself growing up 
in an area similar to Baltimore where I was in areas that wasn't the nicest, but the leadership, the community leadership in particular was really strong. So if I had to take the pot of money that was going to be given, you know, that is given to the police system, I would put it towards really making sure that they put the right leadership, training the right leadership. And if we're even talking about the future of Baltimore, it puzzles me how, how people don't consider the young people as one of the most important factors in that. And it's good to have youth-led activities, but it's more important to me to have youth-led activities that are backed by leaders in our community, similar to Pastor Brown's Arita, you know, Arita uh, Cross Freedom School. You know, my son goes there whenever he can. And that type of leadership, that type of example will build strong leaders in the future because you have a trusted leadership. You know, you're not just paying these principals to come in and only stay one right. year. I see that. I'm actually have a meeting at my son's school after this to deal with a situation about inappropriate violence in the school. And my son's in kindergarten. Inappropriate so, violence in a kindergarten. Yeah, inappropriate violence. The teacher didn't find it necessary to communicate to parents, so I'm going to go and make sure that she understands that. And this is a Baltimore City public charter school. So we think that charter schools are trusted places, right? And also the people don't necessarily come from the same walks of life as these young people, and they don't even take the time to understand. So when you have that that level of leadership that's kind of shaky, it's not a trusted place. Parents have to spend about 40% of their time going up there if there's even parents to advocate. And mm-hmm. so for me, I w- I'm a parent that, a, w- a woman that advocates for young people, period, um, and for people, period. So that money I would take towards making sure young people are trained adequately. Scholars are being built. That's why I have my new program, New Generation Scholars, to make sure young people are really being trained so that they can stay in Baltimore and also contribute in a positive and, and sensible way. Um, not just like I'm going to run for you know city council, I'm going to be mayor. I'm gonna, no, really contribute in a sensible way to build systems because that is something that's really lacking. And that's what I'm afraid for, for my young people and my son in particular. I'm trying to put them in good places, places that are not getting funded, but then places that are, and they don't have good leadership. You know, They don't even know when to communicate to parents to make sure that we're building a community to make sure young people are safe and young people are you know thinking in the right and going in the right direction. So... So there's so many critically important things here. Um, uh, let me just say, somebody just pasted something here. The Rollins Blake fiscal year 2017 budget recommends 451 million on police, 256 million on public education. That's the sum, but that doesn't count for overtime and all the other money because it's actually way over 500 million dollars that we put in the city police. Put no money into parks and recs, maybe 30 million dollars. That's, that's frightening. And no money into the public into the Department mm-hmm. of Health. No. Criminal. Zero money. All that money comes from somewhere else. Mental health is really weird. From grants, federal grants, foundation grants, the money for the health department, which is why Safe Streets almost ended, was because the money didn't come to make it work. They had to raise the money from foundations. So that's part of what, you know, how do we spend the money we have? That's that's like criminal. Let's hit the phones at 410-319-8888. Chris, you're on the air. Welcome. Chris in Baltimore. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Good morning, Mark. Good morning to your guests. Um, I'm glad you're having this conversation and, and in the same conversation talking about youth and returning citizens. I think a lot of times they're separated because each demographic has its own needs, but they are in proximity to each other in the community, and one rubs off of the other a lot of times. Um, unfortunately, we haven't heard a lot about criminal justice issues here recently. It, it was topical during um, election time. But now it seems to have died away. And if we don't address criminal justice issues in Baltimore, uh, Brother Eddie Conway touched on it, the people who will return to this city, 
Now, we can talk about the youth all day long. If we don't also address the other component of the community being those returning citizens, we aren't really going to change the dynamic much. Uh, towards the point you mentioned earlier, people making 7 and $8 an hour, that doesn't work for them. And a lot of times that's predicated on the fact that they have the criminal record. Uh, in one of your previous shows, I called and talked about the bill uh, for nonviolent felony expungement. We, right. we need to right. seriously think about that because other states do offer that. Other states, again, other states do offer that. And the effect of it is that people, once they come home, they can actually start over uh, once they finish their pro probation. So I just wanted to add that to the conversation, as well as saying good morning to Brother Pastor Heber Brown. Thank you so much, Chris. <laughs> good morning, man. Good to, good to hear your voice. <laughs> and and I, I think that, that this is tackled just a minute, Eddie. I mean, it said that we we not only have to we have to reform this criminal justice system so that we stop putting people in jail and, and create a system that where we can put money into of restorative justice. The changes in the dynamics of communities. I mean, you imagine what would happen if, let's say, where you go every day and get more homes instead of busting some young person and put him in jail, that you gathered the entire family around to uh, and community members to help deal with this child and talk to him and, 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 and do it in a different way instead of incarcerating somebody, then we wouldn't have to worry about expungement. Though we do have to worry about expungement, we need to expunge all those records, period, done. Get them off these people's uh, backs. Anyway, I'm, so, I'm sorry, Eddie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to a great degree, that's what happens in most communities. They do restorative justice to the level that they can unless it gets completely out of hand. And that needs to be supported and that needs to be encouraged instead of the kind of things that I see when I'm down there, uh, this this massive invasions and this, like, young 15-, 16-year-olds being chased through the community by 10, 20 police cars uh, 10, 15 police on foot. The children are terrorized all throughout the community in the middle of the day. It scares them to death. But at the same time, they see their community and they see their future as a hopeless proposition. Mm-hmm. That needs to change. And, and, and if this restorative justice is one thing. But another thing is like, yeah, we do need to transfer those funds. We need to transfer those funds into the education system. We need to transfer those funds to create jobs. We need to use that money instead of policing the community in a in a uh, a, a very uh, oppressive kind of way. We need to use that money to encourage youth to grow, develop, and train and learn and be able to take care of themselves. And that's being that's missed. So on the way back to the poems, let me ask a very quick question. Maybe the, uh, very quickly. Um, uh, maybe David, you can grab this in, in Hebrew. But I, would, I promise my listeners, I get to them here. Do you think a program can be designed that can actually intervene in the lives of the many young men in the city who are involved in the violence that takes place in our communities? That can ameliorate it, end it. That can truly intervene in that. It's bigger than a program. It is bigger than a program. It, you know, in, in essence, it's, it's, it's bigger than a program. I mean, it has to be, um, I mean, we're looking at lifestyle change and we're looking at access to opportunity. But, um, you know, piggybacking on, on what the brother was, was talking about on the caller, um, th- th- when we look at the, the large number of men and women who are coming back home, um, that is probably on the top of my list of issues that we got to deal with. And it's often talked about, as if it's, you know, some folks over there in the corner who we can deal with during election time. And so I just think that it's um, 
both a combination of um, the programmatic piece is one thing, but there has to be lifestyle change and an investment in communities. It can't just be, well, we'll replicate what Joe Jones is doing at the Center for Urban right. Families. Or we right. can't just replicate the Strive model in Harlem. I mean, it has to be a strategic investment coupled with lifestyle change. Thirty years ago today, Ella Baker died, one of the greatest organizers that this world has ever seen. And I think to do what you suggest, Mark, and to do what uh, Brother David had just spoken to as well, it's going to require a degree of organizing on the local level like we've never seen before. We really have to embrace um, embrace beyond rhetoric that we're in a state of emergency. And I say embrace beyond rhetoric because we've heard that language oftentimes. This is a state of emergency. I remember when Tavis Smiley was putting out conferences and books, state of emergency, we must save Jawazik and Jufu, we must save the African-American male. We've, saved, we've heard that language a lot. But I think it really has to come to that level where we act like it's a state of emergency and do the organizing on the local level and find a way to do it without a dime coming from anybody. Mm-hmm. I really think, and, it, and I thank you so much for all... Uh, Mark, you've spoken about the Reaches Cross Freedom School over and over in Sharena, and we love Bashi as one of our Freedom School veterans uh, in, in kindergarten in our Freedom little School. Bashi. Little Bashi, little Bashi. Um, but the thing that I appreciate the most about running a school uh, and these other programs that I'm doing that I have to figure out how to do it without a dime coming from anybody else. And I yes. think sometimes we rush so much to go and get big grants from folks that you don't give your innovative, resourceful g- gift a chance to figure it out. And I think that's the, what we uh, have an opportunity to do on the local level in these local communities. When I think about what Brother Conway is doing over there in Gilmore Homes community, uh, without major foundations dropping millions right. of dollars on the program, they have figured out some things about how to get get stuff done in a very resourceful way. Muse 360, the same way, all of our programs. And so I think, you know, if we're waiting for somebody to cut a check, you're going to be waiting all of your life. <laughs> Figure out how to do it with, with the money you have in your pocket or the sugar you got in your cupboard or the sweet potatoes you grow in your yard. If you can do it at that level, block by block, family by family, neighborhood by neighborhood, I think a bottom-up, bubble-up will uh, help to bring about some of the change that we need. But I think that's it. We got to go back. I mean, let's not get so comfortable that we're looking for grants all the time to do everything. I was born on Edmondson, 1921 West Edmondson Avenue. I've, I'm a veteran of uh, cheese bread and syrup sandwiches. And, it, like, our family, fig- y'all eat cheese bread? You like cheese bread? Hand me downs and yeah. Cheerios with tap water because we couldn't buy syrup. And king syrup. <laughs> syrup. I still Graham got practice. king syrup clogging up my arteries. But But the thing I'm trying to say is... That we figured out a way. We are resourceful people. We have to figure out a way to do it uh, in our local communities without outside assistance. Not to say we won't welcome outside assistance, but until you figure out how to do it without that, you'll be waiting around for somebody else to come do it for you. You're going to be waiting for a long time. Very powerfully said. Let's go back to the phones. Get a couple of callers here in a row. 410-319-8888. Let's start with Ricky. You're on the air. I was listening to your your last guest. I remember those syrup Keep sandwiches, <laughs> butter sandwiches, right. apple butter, mayonnaise, right. sugar sandwiches, cheese sandwiches. I mean, I grew up just like that guy. I remember all that, but that's not what I'm calling. <laughs> On the subject of the subject matter, I was thinking, um, y'all, is this entire show, uh, if it could be a uh, tape made and presented to the new mayor and her administration. I think it's food for thought for. It really is the whole show. But I call to say that y'all have really touched things from an interesting aspect in terms of the uh, intricate uh, 
uh, how should I say it, functioning and systemic uh, uh, and critical uh, 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 circuitry and functioning of the city as it pertains to violent crime. Uh, my thinking on that is this. Uh, violent crime is just, uh, now a word that somebody, one of your guests uses, systemic of low income, uh, uh, uneducated, uh, disenfranchised uh, peoples, whether white, black, living in uh, dilapidated and urban type areas, but that can be dealt with if law enforcement uh, comes to realize that uh, 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 criminal activity uh, is not just restricted uh, to these lower levels. It's on a higher level, and if they learn law enforcement to work in conjunction with these fraternities and organizations who use uh, 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 some tactics that are questionable, use corporate sometimes, and attorneys to that uh, use loopholes to uh, distinctly and specifically bring in revenue. In other words, they can work with these type of higher level fraternities towards stemming the tide of violence on the lower levels. Uh, they do it anyway sometimes, but it's not known. But they need to right. do that in such a way as to get these uh, higher level criminal organizations to send the tide of violence that they sometimes indirectly create. And some of these so-called and alleged criminal higher level organizations aren't just criminal in a vain or negative sense. They do a lot of charitable work. They help a lot of people. Uh, they're associated with causes that are uh, meaningful and purposeful. And then sometimes they're associated with agencies, the local, state, and federal government, unbeknownst to us. But they need to get within. Okay. Uh, you understand my, my right. I'm going with this? I, they I, can stem what's going on on the lower levels if they get some cooperation. And these people are going to always be in business on a higher level, whether in a uh, Law enforcement is not going to do anything about it because they serve the interests of the nationally of the economy and okay. they're able to get away with things, but they can help in urban communities. Ricky, we're going to come tackle that point and get a couple of callers news. We can get comments here from our, our panel four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Let's go to Gene. You're on the air. Welcome. Good morning, Gene. Gene, not there. Then let's go to uh, Jill. You're on the air. Welcome. Jill, you there? Hi, Jill. Is it the phones? People are just on there. All right, Donna. Let's try Donna. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, Donna. Good morning. Good morning. Um, a lot to talk about, but I, I, I hear about the you know not non mentoring and boys and families, but we don't talk about the mothers, the women. We. <clears throat> have a crisis in the social service system because the way the system's set up, the money is funneled through the mothers. If the mothers choose not to put that money into their children, clothing, food, etc., it will not happen. Um, Mark, you know, I called many times ago saying that we're still having children between 8 and 12 years old coming into our neighborhood. And, you know, carjacking, knockers ahead. Now we have one young youth, he's about 14, trying to rob us by gunpoint. We're still trying to catch him. These children are crying out for help. They don't have anybody advocating for them. Their rights are being violated and not respected, not by the juvenile system because they're not there yet, but by the mothers that raised them. If the mothers, if we can't, Make sure that the funding that the mothers get don't get, get to the children. We can't get that money to the children. Get them clothing, food, 
they're still selling their food stamps for drugs or whatever. Um, you know, uh, you know anything. You know, just some of the basic needs that children have. Yes, these kids are going to be in the juvenile system because they're going to steal to get it. I wanted you guys to talk about that. We've got to deal with the structured system of that social service system that's not working. So, so let me let, let's come back to the panel here for a few minutes before we go back to the phones again. And get some other Jill has called back. I'll get to Jill here. Um, and so, um, but let's rest with what we just heard a little bit. Um, I mean, th- this is, uh, you know, I, the last thing that Donna said, you know, it's not working, clearly. Um, and part of it is we, 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 we don't have, people don't have jobs. The other part is when she talks about the little boy who's 14 years old who's robbing people. I mean, I may be, maybe I'm crazy, but, and, you know, and I don't, and I'm not some kind of wishy-washy little liberal saying this. Um, <laughs> I'm saying that when I see a 14-year-old boy with a gun or a knife or whatever he has or she has and they're trying to rob somebody, I don't necessarily think that young boy should go to jail. I think there's other ways to deal with young people like that. Definitely. Rather definitely. than putting them in prison where the gun can be taken away and you can actually start working with young people mm-hmm. and bringing them into the community and helping them get through it. Now, you're not going to – some of those young people out there are going to slip through the cracks and go right back to the corner because the corner is such a drug in itself, given the nature of people's lives. But there's got to be another way. And so, if you, you know, there may be sometimes when kids do have to be separated because they just do. <laughs> but the majority don't. I was I was troubled by the sister's comments, right? And I just 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 in this brief, is David Miller. I just think that um, we also have to spend a lot more time in, in changing this narrative about what's happening. In communities, because because we let folks believe that it's absolute bedlam and going on twenty four hours a day, seven days a week in every community, and that there are no gifts and that there is no progress happening in communities. And I think that in mass, Baltimore has historically had a PR problem that we never promote and or share a lot of the good stuff that's happening because. While we could spend another hour talking about all of the challenges, all of us could go around the room and collectively talk about young people who are doing well, families who are not selling food stamps or whatever the case may be. And I just think that that has historically been the narrative about Baltimore. So some energy needs to be spent on how do we tell a more accurate narrative about what's actually happening in the midst of some of the other things. Because – you know, when I'm out of town and I tell people from, I'm from Baltimore, I've had people, like, grab their purses and move away from me. You know, and, and so some of it is we got to – we and I'm not asking the Baltimore Sun to do a damn thing, right? Mm-hmm. We, need to, we need to uplift stations like WEAA and the work that you're doing, Mark, because, because there needs to be some new voices and some new stories because I'm just tired of hearing the gloom and doom scenario. No, and I think the voice is – go ahead, Eddie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I want to I add to that and add the real news to that as, as a source also for mm-hmm. information and promoting a, a different perspective. But I think it's important, two things, because uh, I was kind of troubled by that last uh, okay. thing also. Women, black women are the fastest growing prison population in America, in America yes. right now. But beyond that, Sisters that's raising children, uh, in all too many cases, has got to be, and I think uh, Miss Eiffel spoke about this at the solution thing, they got to be out there on the bus stop yes, right. at 6 o'clock in the morning 
And then after they get spend two hours to get to work, and then when they get back, they've spent 14 hours away from home. They come home tired, and then they expect it to assume the responsibility of teaching homework or, or, or to interact it. And a lot of people don't understand this. And people can actually work for 40 hours a week and still need food stamps. You know, and so there's a lot of stuff that we need to look at and address before we start blaming the victim of how this actually came about. We do have to, as Pastor Brown say, look at it, the systemic problem, because that that's where we have to press the button at. And the sister in the house. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was just, you know, I, I work with all kinds of people. And particularly what I don't do is categorize my anybody that I work with as a certain population or you're dealing with this. And I remember um, when I was still working in corporate America, if you will, and a woman from Baltimore, she was like my mentor. She was maybe like 20 years older than me. And I said, you know, there was something that happened in this particular Baltimore neighborhood. Like maybe we could do something, you know, can you help me? And she was like, that's not the world that I live in. She was like, I live in Owens Mills now. Like that, she was like, I did grow up in that neighborhood, but that's not, that's not the world that I live in. Those people are, put themselves in that situation. And I just think, like, from my example was my mother, who was an advocate, currently is an advocate for young people. And as much as I did not like always be marching and being out there, I've, I've become that person. And I would encourage, like, a lot of the sisters or a lot of the women, the mothers, to put yourself in the shoes of that mother who doesn't know that her son is out there doing those things. I had two little boys on a Sunday knock on my door and run, Okay. So I said, no, they didn't just run. So what I did was I got in my car. I knew they was walking slow around the street. And I stopped them. I said, did y'all just knock on my door? And they was like, oh, my God. You know, but eventually they came over. They said, Miss Christmas, nice to meet you. We're going to try to do better. I know better than that. Now, I took a risk, right? But these two young teenage boys, all they needed to know was that I'm looking out for you. And I introduced them to my son the next time. And I just would encourage people before you use that narrative to say people are selling food stamps. You don't know who has food stamps. Because if you ever go to social services, not everybody looks the same in there. There's some people in there that come from another neighborhood as well. And I just would encourage people really to just take a step down, come and work with people that are actually in that population, working with young people, and just try to change that. Just like Mr. Miller said, like, Having that idea about Baltimore is just that's just not the case, you know. And when you treat people like that, then they they you, you're putting that energy into the universe, and so eventually they start to wear that. You're you're 14, you you had a gun, you're not somebody that I would work with. But why not, you know? So I think that people we have to take a risk and we have to you know be hopeful and remain positive. And I always tell people instead of segregating ourselves, particularly, you know, in our communities, you know, love is the one thing that my mother taught me how to bridge the gap. Like if I just show a little bit of love, say, hey, good morning, Mark. You might be like, oh, this Christmas never speaks. No, I always speak. And you can speak back. And that's something that I do at Muse 360 with my youth, like just giving them a little bit of love. You know, I mean, I just think that people are so quick to judge and you haven't walked in those shoes. And if you did walk in those shoes, just take a just take a little a, a trip down memory lane and you'll remember how it was and how hard it is to be categorized as something. Um, so just changing the language is really important and just taking some time to, to kind of, you know, be think about people in a human a human way, I think, is, is would be helpful. In a way, we're almost out of time here. We'll try to get on the caller if we can, but going to Heber here. I mean, I was thinking about these women who people are saying selling food stamps, but you have no idea what people, why they're selling food stamps. I mean, I... I, I actually had someone some, try to sell me food stamps the other day, a woman I know. And she's trying to, because she had to make a choice, I need to take a bus, and I also got to pay my rent. If you give me the, if I, you buy these food stamps, you can use them, and I can pay my rent. I went, 
<laughs> right. So I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a, a not, I know she, I know she's a recovering addict. I know she's no longer a junkie. She wasn't using it for drugs. She literally wanted to pay her rent. Mm-hmm. And people know how many people in the city in the city in a situation where they don't know what to what they, what what to, what to pay first or how to get there. That's reality. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. You put any of us in the right situation, we all would do some things that people would talk about and say, I can't believe they're doing that. Right. And being in ministry for 16 years, um, I've seen Sunday morning churchgoers praise the Lord with the, with the depth of their heart and their soul, uh, but put in the wrong situation. Um, you know, do some, make some decisions and do some actions that, you know, they would even be disappointed of in their right mind. So I think all of us, you know, have been there, done that, you know, and, and still are. I mean, let's just be real. The year's about to end. Let's be honest. For the new year come in, that all of us still are trying to struggle with the tension of, um, you know, living, leaning and in, living into the best version of ourselves, uh, but also analyzing these systems that help to entice um, um you know, sides of us that, you know, we wouldn't rather be in that position. But looking at the systems that bring that out, we got to challenge that. We got to we got to push back. And there's, there's some um, classism. You know, I, I just want to name that that we've been talking about some classism we got to address uh, as well. Um, even within the black community, we got to deal with that uh, as well. And so there's so many streams and so many angles, so so many facets of this. I would just say, and Chris was so right to bring up. Uh, returning citizens and the like, and Brother Conway brought it up before him. And this, we really could talk about so many different issues. I'm just really right now, Mark, um, zoned in. And I was sitting in the green room with, with my big brother, uh, David Miller, just how he's helped me over the years. But really zoned in on what is it that you do well? What is it that, what, what's that unique, fin- what I call the unique fingerprint of God on your life? That while you're here, it's going to help make some type of difference. If you put your fingerprint with somebody else's fingerprint and and put that together, it can really make a systemic, long-lasting change beyond your lifetime. But what we can't do uh, is point at David. Oh, David's doing that over there. He don't need to be doing that. He need to be doing this. And all Shireen is over there doing What are you doing? What are you doing? And how can you support Sister Christmas? How you how can you support Brother Conway, Brother Miller? Uh, and and put that energy into supporting one another more, and I think that goes a long way too. Especially when you're trying to make a dollar out of fifteen cent and run some programs without you know the support that you think you deserve and need. Well, we will co- we will continue this conversation. I, the, the, the four people I have in this program here are uh, four of my favorite people, amazing human beings who are doing the work that has to be done. Um, and we have to keep these conversations and make them larger in this community because we really I think we're at a time now where we have this man. <laughs> gone to that place in D.C. <laughs> and we have a new administration with eight new city council people here in the city. Yeah, And, and, and in some ways I look at our history and I think that we are like in, um, not exactly, but we are somewhere, if you, if you study your history, we're somewhere between 1865 and 1877. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And the pushback has been coming since 1968 and it's going to, and, and we're at that place. And so this is what a really important moment we're in. I think we have to grab a hold of it to not allow it to repeat itself, to take back everything that was fought for, yeah. and to move it ahead and not have to slip backwards. That's what I have to say. Amen. <laughs> to that. So, and I do want to thank everybody. And, and I, you know, we try to get you all, but uh, some people left us. Should we try to get one sneak? One? I guess we do have to. Well, we have the other guests coming in. They're all waiting for us in there. They're here. Okay, other guests are here. So uh, we do have to to roll. I do apologize, Jill and Jean. We try to get to your calls earlier, but then we picked up something happened to the phones with you all. I do apologize, but 
do write to me here at talkistanashow.org or leave us a message and I'll get back to what your thoughts were. We'll get you back on the air here for these conversations, I promise, and let you know what's happening so you can be part of those discussions. I want to thank uh, Sharana Christmas, uh, director of Muse 360 Arts, uh, one of our gems in this community, David Miller, creator of the Dare to Be King LLC, Eddie Conway, producer of Real, Real News Network, Baltimore Bureau, and Reverend Heber Brown, uh, Pastor Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. Thank the four of you so much for your time. Thanks, Mark. Right, thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you.